Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, superstars. Welcome along to episode 148 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring Major League Baseball pitcher Liam Hendricks. One, two. He struck him out, Hendricks. Struck him out, fastball, and Liam Hendricks can celebrate. He busted him with more heat. Now, unless you're a baseball fan or a true diehard sports fan, you might actually not be too aware of Liam and his career. Well, let me tell you right now, the man from Perth has a truly incredible story to tell. I really love these episodes that delve into US sports because American sports are so different to professional sport here in Australia. The level of competition to get a spot on the team is so very high, but, and it's a big but, if you can make it and find your niche, as Liam has done, the profile is enormous, the fan bases are huge, and the financial rewards are eye-watering. It really makes for rags to riches stories, which is what Liam's tale is. Years years battling away in the minor leagues, getting cut, getting traded, being discarded, moved on, basically being told you're not good enough. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Then, through hard work, persistence and belief, there's the potential for a mega deal. I mean mega deal, which is exactly what Liam signed in January 2021 with the Chicago White Sox, one of the most storied teams in US sports. Enjoy the truly incredible story of Liam Hendricks, a bloke from Perth who chucks a baseball at 160 clicks and chucks it well. So when you search and then you find Know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games A man that is big time in Major League Baseball can't wait to hear his story and him to educate me about the game. Liam Hendricks, I think we've been trying for, what, a year and a half to line this up. But to be honest, in the summer, all you do is play baseball day in, day out. Yeah, we, uh, we it has been a while trying to line it up. But, uh, yeah, we've got – we play 162 games in a year and it's usually about 181 days that we play it in. And that doesn't count preseason, which is another probably almost almost 45 to 60 days in there as well. It's phenomenal when you think about it, isn't it? We talk, I know you come from an AFL background, which we'll get to, and we talk about, you know, one game a week, and obviously it's a different physical game, and the cricketers say they're playing a lot of cricket at the moment, but 162 (laughs) games in the regular season, the preparation must be what it's all about, especially when you're going from hotel to hotel. How, How many nights do you spend in hotels? Yeah, so obviously 162 games, we have 81 games on the road, and that doesn't include, like, off days where... You may travel from city to city, so you're in another hotel. So we're probably spending, yeah, close to about 100 days a year in a hotel, and that's three days in one, then three days in another, then three days in another. It's no, it's never like a couple of weeks stay in one city. It's it's uh, there's a lot of moving around, a lot of different beds, a lot of different pillows. Well, talking about pillows, the the crew I work with on the cricket, they think it's hilarious that I take my own 
quick uh, pillow with me when I get away so I can sleep better. Do you take your own pillow? You must have some freaky routines to get a good night's sleep because you play too late. Obviously, you play so many night games. Yeah, so most games are at 7. Uh, get back to the hotel around 11, 11.30. And then for me, I just turn on the, t- I turn on the telly. I get a cup of coffee on the way home from the field because that seems to calm me down a little bit. Right. Uh, and then turn on the telly. And, um, yeah, for me, it's I watch a lot of just we've got the, this Amazon Fire Stick that I that plug in the TV. I can stream all my stuff on it. And so... Yeah, I'll watch a couple shows, whatever I'm show I'm watching, and then I turn on this one singular episode of Bones every single night, and it's this <laughs> one that it, it it helps calm me down. I turn it on, and I'm out within five minutes. But uh, I don't travel with my own pillow. Uh, some guys do, some guys don't, but um, I usually try and uh, I, I'm a perennial overpacker. So it doesn't matter. I'm <laughs> gone for three days. I'm taking a full suitcase. So it's, I can never find room for a pillow. As I said, mate, there's so many questions I have for you, but it's it's coming to the tail end of winter, obviously, where you are now. So th- there's one of the great American expressions, and there's a, so many things I don't know about this game, so you'll have to stick with me a bit. Spring training. Now, when I hear the term spring training in Florida, I think that sounds like good fun. To me, it sounds like you're going down there with your mates, just throwing a few baseball rounds, and you're enjoying the sunshine. What? When does it start? And and what is it? And how important is it? Is it like an AFL preseason, or is it completely different? Yeah, pretty much exactly like a preseason. So we get there, pitches and catches report a little bit early because we take a little bit longer to get ready, just to uh, to get into that game thing. But we usually rock up right around Valentine's Day. Paying off. It's day one of spring training here at Camelback Ranch. First day of practice for pitchers and catchers. Although most of the roster already here, getting in some work as well, and that includes some big names out here for the White Sox. And then we are about two weeks-ish, two and a bit weeks uh, until games start. And then you've got 28 games of spring training. And that's pretty much the preseason games. But yeah, sp- spring training is different. It's a different animal because I'm getting to the field at six o'clock in the morning. The games are all at one o'clock. Generally, there's maybe a couple night games here and there, but generally you're at one o'clock. So you're there at six o'clock just to get pretty much body prepared for 162 games. And that's what it... Uh, that's what it comes down to, but it's pretty similar to uh, preseason where the statistics don't really matter. If you're a veteran guy, like I would, through, so normally in the regular season, I'm towards the back end of the game. In spring training, I am usually one of the first guys in there after the starting pitcher. And so I'm in there. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm out. I leave. I go back. I, I get back in the car. I take a shower, get in the car and come back home and have dinner with my wife. So, so you don't stay around for the rest of the game? No, that's what I'm saying. It's it's why like spring training is an entirely different animal than the regular season. But it's yeah, you you get your stuff done. If you're a position player, you play three innings and then five innings and then yeah, if you if we're on the road, we just drive ourselves or we'll park and then as soon as you're done, you shower and you get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is one of many fascinating points. I'm sure we're going to cover. So, 162 regular season games. How many? Do you typically play of those 162 when you're when you're having a good year, which you have been, which we'll get to. You the, the the work you're doing at the White Sox is incredible. Yeah, generally uh, my goal is to always get to 70 70 appearances, so it's just under half. Uh, but yeah, last year I was at 69. The year before that, I was at uh, it was the pandemic shortened year, and I think I had 24 of the 60 games, so I was right on track for that. And then 75 the year before that, but that's usually my my goal is right around 70. But obviously, it depends on the situation. There's certain times where I may go, like, so I always say with our manager, I always go, like, if I haven't pitched in four days, just send me out there for the courtesy runaround. That way I can maintain, like, I can stay in shape. I make sure everything's coming out smoothly. I don't lose that feel of the ball. But uh, there could be days where, there could be, like, weeks where I'm going 
10 days out of 14 games. It just depends on the, the current streak that we're on as a team. What's the courtesy run around? So, like, if I haven't played in a few days, you know when you get rusty from not doing something? Yeah. Four days, that's my limit. If I get four, if I get three games in, I'm usually trying to pitch on that fourth day so that I can just make, keep everything oiled well. Okay, so now let's talk about the physical preparation. We'll get back to where you started in WA, et cetera, but let's dive straight in. To, to Again, for someone that doesn't know about it, obviously the issues for pitchers seem to be shoulders and elbows over a long career. If you're going out there to pitch 70 games of Major League Baseball, at this time of the year and overall maintenance, how do you prepare? Is it weights? Is it How do you get your arm ready to go? So for me, it's just a lot of throwing. Like I came, so back in Australia, like we would, I would have, um, I'd play all winter and then summer would roll, oh, sorry, I'd play all summer and then winter would roll around and we're just going to be like, okay, I need to do something. So I got put into the Institute of Sport as a kid and we threw year round. So when I came over here, I realized that I needed to do that. So I was continually throwing. Even when I came over to the States my first couple of years, I was going back to Perth, playing for the Wanneroo Giants and playing sort of that sort of stuff. And then in 2018, I went through a whole little debacle with like up and down and between the, the big leagues and the, and the minor league stuff and realized that I need to do more throwing. So I was long tossing a lot more, which is just throwing as far as I possibly can. And then at that point, I actually stopped lifting, stopped working out, stopped running. And that tended to, for whatever reason, everything kind of started working a little bit better. Everything started flowing a little bit more smooth. It's like being too big on a footy field. Okay. If you're too big, you, you, your body doesn't move the right way. So for me, it's like I stopped working out and then all of a sudden the gear started rolling and I, I increased my velocity from probably right around 145 to 150 to 160 Ks. Right. So <laughs> the physical requirements to be a pitcher, um, I, I know you, you follow the cricket a bit. So if I, I look at the fast bowlers, like the Brett Lees of the world, yeah, they've got a big ass on them, okay? <laughs> a, a fast bowling ass, he calls it. You pitchers seem to have that sort of physical requirement. You're like I, I don't want to say you've got a big ass, but that's where your power comes from. Where does the power come from? Yeah, it's it's a combination, obviously. Uh, it's a lot of lower body and then torque because at the end of the day, like you want your upper body to be a little bit more whippy. You want it to kind of be, kind of come through that zone and it's just it's a, like a culmination of the way your entire body works. So you want to have some bigger legs. It's not always the case. Some guys aren't the other way, and they just have this physical gift of being able to whip everything through the right way. But for me, I have some bigger legs, and it's a lot of uh, right quad, left hamstring, and core being able to torque it around, and then uh, and then making sure everything flows in the right direction. Because you could be doing everything perfectly, but it doesn't line up together, and it doesn't work. All right, take me back to, to WA and your, your family history. There, there's some, there's a, there's a lot of sport in your family. Like if you go back to your father, he, he played a lot of high level footy in the waffle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, if you even go back to my mum's dad and pop, um, Alan Locker, he, uh, yeah, he played for uh, the the waffle as well back in the day as well. <laughs> and so it's like it's got a bit of got a bit of from mum's side, got a bit from dad's side. But yeah, dad played footy for the uh, the West Perth Falcons. At 16, he made it into the league. This is when the – I think it was still VFL at that point. So he's uh, – he's a, yeah, I think he won a championship that first year. And then uh, this is back when he had hair and it was long and blonde and flowing and everything <laughs> like that. It's, times have changed a little bit. But, yeah, Dad's still involved in footy. He still scouts for the Sydney Swans now and uh, loves every, – every time I call him on a Saturday, what you hear in the background is the whistles of the waffle going on. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you as a young bloke growing up, you played all sorts of sports. What, what were you into? You played footy and, and how'd you get into baseball? 
Yeah, so I played footy. Um, yeah, that was that was obviously my go-to being in that. Uh, had the dad, dad is a, a nice hard critic when every time I had to write home. So that was always a good time. But I uh, got into baseball just through T-ball. And it was one of those things where you need a summer sport. Footy's a winter sport, so you need a summer sport because I was an active kid, wanted to run around a little bit. And it was either cricket or T-ball. And we had some friends going to T-ball and we just kind of went that way with it and uh, kind of stuck with it. And that was one of the things. I just did that and then... All of a sudden, the ball started moving, so I started continuing on, and then started getting a little bit better at it because I was like, I still have this. My I was texting one of my buddies back home, and he was telling me, "It's like, yeah, I remember when you got cut, first cut from the state team, and then there's a re- like a reserve state team called the Seabit, and that was the Southeast Asian Baseball and Softball Tournament." And he goes, "Then you got cut, first cut from that, so you weren't even the best top fifty. And he goes, "Not even that, you weren't even the best like 160 kids in the state, let alone anything else." So I got cut, first cut from both teams. And then had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder the next year. I was like, look, if I don't make it, I'm not going to continue this. I'm going to do something else and I'm going to focus on footy. And that was at the age of 13. But uh, luckily made it and then ended up making the Institute of Sport team, which is the top six, like six-ish kids that they took. And, and Bob's your uncle. Here we are. So this is the great thing. The thing I love about this podcast, Liam, and I, I know you've, you've listened to a few, which I'm appreciative of, is that everybody that gets somewhere in life often have a lot of... Um, setbacks along the way. And when we get through your baseball career, there is plenty of those which we'll get to. You know, where you're sitting now is not where you were for the previous 10 years. Just just on your footy, so it says you were um, father-son to the West Coast Eagles. I've read that. Now, is this one of those sort of urban myths that that you could have potentially ended up at the Eagles or is that overstating the fact? And, you know, what position were you? What, What was your footy career about? Yeah, so I was more of a halfback flank, um, like defense, like making sure I could kind of almost run out there and kill a guy if I needed to. Um, uh, yeah, but the father-son thing was because dad played over, I think it was 150, 175 games of Waffle before a certain year. Yeah. So he did that. So I was actually, yeah, so father-son to the Eagles. I actually had, when I pulled out and it was like, look, I'm focusing on baseball, I actually had teams call my dad. Really? And uh, so there was a couple teams that were in the top 10. Uh, top 10 picks of the first round. And so they yep. called saying, hey, is this a real thing or is it just like a, buying him time to go to the father-son of the Eagles? And it's like, I'm not an Eagles fan. I'm a North Melbourne fan. So it's like, the last thing I really wanted to do was play for the Eagles anyway. If You're I'm going to play for if I'm going to... Oh, without a doubt. This, I mean, you got to remember, <laughs> I grew up in the 90s. You had Glenn Arch, you had Corey yep. McKernan, you had uh, Carey, Stevens, all these guys running out there and Longmire. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my go-to, those guys. And it was... Um, Yes, yeah, so the last thing I want to do is be an 18-year-old kid, maybe playing footy and then probably still living at home with, with mum and dad. So <laughs> I probably wanted to go a little East Coast just to uh, to get a feel for everything. Wow. Okay. So we, we could spend forever, but there's so many <laughs> clubs and teams and situations I want to talk. I, I know you listened to the, I think you said you listened to the Ben Graham episode and, and that the thing that all the feedback I got and the thing that blew me away was how brutal American sport is and how you're playing for a club one day and the next day you're on a plane somewhere else. And I know you've experienced that to an extraordinary amount. But it says here, to kick things off, because I did my research, at 18 you're drafted to the Minnesota Twins. So how, how does that work? How do you find out and what does it mean being drafted to Minnesota? And then you have to get on a plane and go there, obviously. Yeah, so uh, the way Australian kids work, if you don't go to college, you're technically an undrafted free agent. So okay. um, so what happens is we have natural carnivals every January. Yep. Usually in uh, when I was playing, it was in Geelong. So you'd go down there and then 
American teams would send their scouts out just to see if there's anyone that uh, that they liked. Huh. Yeah, so a couple of weeks later, I got uh, we were in conversations with some teams while it was going on the tournament and after that, and then uh, had knee surgery mid mid tournament. We ended up still winning the national championship. We won it three years in a row. And then, yeah, the twin, we ended up signing a deal with the Twins, which meant that uh, that was around, I think, uh, I think I actually agreed to terms for, on my birthday, on my 18th birthday on February 10th. Wow. So we we uh, we agreed to that. I didn't leave until uh, like late March, I think it was. Um, and, yeah, jumped on a plane, came to America. And I spent time, so it's a rookie. Well, I had seven levels at this point. So it was like rookie, advanced rookie. Low A, high A, double A, triple A. So there's just so many levels before you get to the big leagues. It's not like yes. some of the Aussie sports where you get drafted and you go. Um, so I went down to rookie ball and it's in Florida. You're just hanging out with uh, with some other Australians, which is one of the big reasons I like the Twins. They had 10 of us at, their, at that time. So, yeah, going down there, playing baseball every morning and then hanging out with everybody else and pretty much just trying to play video games and stay out of trouble at night. So I, I won't embarrass you with money, but it's it's uh, this tells part of your story, and, and we'll get to you know you. Uh, it's different, isn't it? Because your um, your salary is a public record in the states. Mm. So I can type in Liam Hendricks' salary, and it is everywhere. So uh, you're much more used to it. So 2007, no signing bonus for L Hendricks. He just signs on. Oh, no, and, I, the, I and got your a first signing year, bonus. There was definitely a signing bonus. You did? Yeah, yeah. It was a signing bonus. Um, it, I know the uh, by the time I agreed and by the time I got my first check, it cost yep. me a ton of money in the exchange rate. <laughs> <laughs> but so technically, so I came over on a, uh, I signed for 170000 US dollars. Yes. So your first contract is, is 170 and you do get a yep. signing bonus for that. That was that was my signing bonus. That was my signing And then I came over, my salary for the year is depending on which level you're at. And so oh. if, when I came over... I was getting 450 bucks every two weeks. 450 bucks. So you've got to protect your 170 then. So yeah. as an 18-year-old, when they say, right, here's 170, is your head going, right, new car, new boat? Or is it like, no, I need to put this in the bank? No. So we, uh, my parents are both teachers and they were like, yeah, no, you're not touching this. You can have a little <laughs> bit here and there. But I was like, I know it's the best thing that ever that ever happened to us. Um, yeah, we, uh, I didn't touch it at all for, for years. And that was something that, uh, if I needed to, would be there if um, if we got into trouble, if I needed help with rent or anything like that. Because okay. the first couple of years, you're staying at a hotel. So the team picks up the hotel. You don't have to worry about it. As soon as you get to advanced rookie, you have to suddenly find rent with getting paid maybe an extra 100 bucks every couple of weeks. And that, so it's like, yeah, I get to high A and I'm literally clearing $1,100 a month and my rent is 550 bucks a month. Right. And so I'm living off 500 bucks a month with food, everything like that. So it's a, huh. I, I call it character building. Like it, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, it wasn't something that, uh, it, for the team of heart, it was something that you need to go out there and you need to have a purpose. You need to realize that, look, I'm struggling right now to make sure that that goal later on is attainable. So at what point, I'm sidetracking us here. Um, I'll get you back to where we need to go. At what point do you get a, an agent or a manager that starts taking care of this? Because I guess on, you know, 1100 bucks a, a month, there's not a great deal for Jerry Maguire's cut on the side <laughs> at this point. So so how does that process work? So the good thing is, is with uh, American baseball agents specifically, I don't know any other sports, but with, uh, with baseball agents, you don't pay them until you're making major league minimum plus. So you don't pay them like... So I I got an agent three years into being over there. Yeah. Didn't pay him anything until I got to the big, and I would never have paid him anything until I got to the big leagues and spent three years in the big leagues to pay him. So it's a like you, uh, but you if you get drafted. So if I had an agent when I signed, he would have got a cut of my signing bonus. 
But up until that, they, the players are pretty protected in that regard. But, uh, yeah, for my agent right now, I've, I've been with a couple of different guys just changing fits and all this sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, so I, yeah, currently it's all, it's right around anywhere from three to 5% is what you pay your agents fees. Okay. But that's only what you pay. So if I get to the big leagues, it's, you get three years of the league minimum. Which is what, which is what, you, Liam? What, what would that, what major league minimum plus, uh, as you said, what would that be? Ish. So currently, major league minimum is five seventy. Five seventy. But we're in talks. We're in talks with the new current um, collective bargaining agreement to try and raise that up to try and uh, get more teams spending money on players and everything like this. But um, yeah, when I got up, it was just above four hundred. And then you don't pay anybody until you go through arbitration, which means that three years of service time, you get to start arguing your case of why you should be paid more. Okay. And when that happens, then you get to then that's when you start paying your agent. So I was. Yeah, that's when you need your agent because they're the ones who go to bat. They're the ones who fight the team to get you to get you higher salary. Talking about batting, as a pitcher, you don't bat in the major league. In your career at all, when you're a kid growing up, etc., you obviously batted along the way, yeah? Yeah, without a doubt. So at what stage do they say, right, you can't bat anymore, <laughs> you've got to focus on your pitching? So there's two different leagues. So it's like, um, it's like almost like every Aussie Rules team that's in Victoria and everyone else, they have yep. different rules. Okay. So there's the National League and the American League. So yep. it's split up evenly across the country, but the National League, the pitchers hit. But generally, the relievers don't. It's only the starting pitchers hit. And then the American League, there's no hitters. There's no The pitchers don't hit at all. But, uh, right. yeah, so when I came over with the Twins, it's an American League team, so you don't hit at all as a pitcher until you play a National League team in the big leagues, and that's when you will finally get some at-bats. So I've got three at-bats in my, uh, in my big league career. How'd you go? Uh, so I struck out in the first one. Yeah, hit a hit a ground ball that the guy booted, and then um, I got on base, but it didn't count as a hit, which is unfortunate. And then the next one was uh, about three years later, and I got a walk. So they I ran, I jogged to first base, and that that's been my entire offensive career. <laughs> so in the ten years I've been, yeah, for ten years I've been bounced around the big leagues. It's I've got three at bats. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you go to the Twins, okay? But your debut in two thousand seven. And this is where we get to the teams you start playing with. Now, tell me when I get this wrong. But you start playing for the Gulf Coast League Twins. So, so are they associated with Minnesota and they're down in the minor leagues, yeah? Yeah, so that's uh, the lowest of the lows. There's seven levels and it goes – the G- so at, at the point that I was there, it was the GCL Twins, the Gulf Coast League Twins. Then it was the Elizabethan Twins in the Appalachian League. Then it was the Beloit Snappers in the Midwest League. The Fort Myers Miracle in the Florida State League. Then there was the New Britain Rockcats in the Eastern League. <laughs> then there was the AAA, which is the Rochester Red Wings, which is in the International League. And then you get to the big leagues, which is uh, the Minnesota Twins. But so they're all affiliates of the Twins. There's seven steps, seven leagues you're playing in before you get to Major yeah. League. Have you have you got a shirt from every one of them? Because you have a fair I got shirts, I got hats, I got hoodies. I mean, I don't know what I've kept over the years because there's certain places that I don't really want to remember in that situation. But, so uh, in that, mate, when you know, you're know you mentioning those different places, do you move as you go to – do you physically move house and go to these places or you like what happens there? Because, you know, you're changing teams constantly at this point. Yeah, so generally you're moving up. Very rarely do you – Bounced between two of the minor league levels. but So I got called up in the middle of the year from Beloit, which is in Wisconsin, yep. to Fort Myers, which is in Florida. And so when I did that, like I just packed up all my stuff out of the Beloit apartment. Someone took over the lease, and I went to Florida and took over someone else's lease who got called up there. And so you're just bouncing between leases pretty much if you're going up and down. 
or like when you if you're if you're in between the big leagues and the the AAA or certain places, you generally just it's a little easier to get a hotel and just bounce between hotels because that way you don't have to worry about leases, don't have to worry about anybody taking over or anything like that. And so, do you get a, a phone call? Do you get you again? I'm basing these on sport movies when you know Charlie Sheen gets called into the general manager's office and said, "Right, you're up or you're down." How does that process work when you're told, "Let's stick to the positives at the moment, Liam"? Right, out, you're done with Beloit. You're off to wherever. How does that work? Yeah, generally it's uh, yeah through either the manager, the coach of the team, or if it's like um, in the middle of the night because that has happened before. In the middle of the night, it's usually the trainer. So the uh, this, the um, yeah the physical therapist who's giving you a call and being like, hey, by the way, uh, pack your bags. You got a flight tomorrow at whatever time you're going up, and that's generally how it goes. If you're if you're at the field, it's the coach. If you're at the hotel, it's either the coach and the trainer, or just the trainer killing because the trainers in the minor leagues they also they're the ones who do everybody's physical therapy. They're the ones who do everybody's rehab, and they're the ones who do everybody's travel because <laughs> that's just why give them only one job. <laughs> and. How do you, you know, you, you come from a, an Australian background where we're really team focused and then you're going into a situation where basically you're playing in these teams to get out of these teams in a way, aren't you? So, so how do you, how, how's the team spirit amongst this mob when you roll in and your whole aim is to shut out some games and get out of there? Well, generally speaking, you don't really change. There's like, so there is times you change middle of the year, but generally you're aiming for one level a year. So you're aiming to go up and you're, that's, that's your goal is one level a year. Okay. And if you do any better than that, so you're trying to, when you make a team, you're in that team. If you repeat that level, you, you'll be probably hopefully moving up at some point during the year. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky slope because you want to do well personally, but you also want to root the guys on around you who may be fighting for the exact same position in the next level. It's, it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting concept because when you get up higher, it's a lot of the guys who are a little bit older who have been up and down a little bit more. So they've been around and they can either be two, one of two ways. They can have the great and team building because they know that that's their role. If they're going to get up, it's going to be what, for whatever reason. Or they're giving all the young guys some not so great advice and pushing them down a little bit to make sure that they look better. And it's, uh, <laughs> you got to identify those guys pretty quickly. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's part and parcel of the way the game works, unfortunately. So when do you make your major league debut? So so you had some you had some you had some back issues, yeah. So you went up and down and, and back around a bit before you got to start. Yeah. So I in uh, two thousand I came over in two thousand seven, had a good healthy first year. Two thousand eight, I ended up having spine surgery. So I had a pinched nerve in the base of my neck, which ran all the way down through my fingers, and I started losing feeling in those fingers. And then came back in 09, was ready to go, doing well. Uh, 2010 came on. I had my appendix out right at the uh, an unfortunate time, oh. but that ended up being a blessing in disguise because I met my wife, which is always good. Good. And then um, 2011, September 6, 2011, is when I made my major league debut with the Twins as a starting pitcher, and it was actually against the team I currently play for, which is the Chicago White Sox. Hendricks, uh, of course, missed his first start last Sunday in Baltimore because of some food poisoning, making his first start of the year. Nerves walking out onto the because as you say you're a starting pitcher. We'll get to what your role is now, which is vastly different. Mm-hmm. But what's it like? You know, you've, you've come from WA. You, you've been playing for the Elizabethan Twins in the Appalachian League and the Beloit Snappers in oh, the yeah. Midwest League. What's it like when you get on the mound for the first time? Well, it's terrifying because in, in Minnesota, the way you warm up, you're in the you're 
So you go out to the bullpen, you warm up there, just to make sure your arm's loose, everything's going well. So I'm warming up, and I'm warming up right smack bang next to the starting pitcher for the other team because the bullpens are right next to each other there. So there's two mounds in the lower bit, which is the uh, which is the visiting which is the home uh, the visiting team, and then the the uh, two bullpens slightly, very 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 slightly higher, which is the uh, the home team. Yeah. So I'm warming up up there. I'm getting doing it all, and then all of a sudden I hear Jake Peavy, who was warming up for them, who is a very boisterous human being, just like throws a pitch and he's screaming. And it's just, and he stops that. He they they put it on the video board like I'm making my debut, and he they, he stops warming up. It's the same mate. Oh, he goes, hey, congratulations, good luck out there, and then turned back to starting warming up himself and just yelling again. That was an interesting time period, but I was very lucky in the fact that the guys that were around me, the guy who was catching me specifically, I'd played with in AAA earlier. Okay, so he'd been up and down a little bit. He he's been around a lot a long time, so I was able to kind of pick his brain a little bit about that. And he just goes, look, stand on the mound. And when you get out there at the start of the game, just spin around, just soak it in, spin around, take a couple deep breaths, and let's go to work. One and two to Beltran. Change up, got it. Quick pitch. Nice breaking pitch, darting down and away. A mighty swing and a miss. One away. Back to Liam in a tick. Next week's guest on the Howie Games is jockey Jamie Carr. Jamie, well, she's a star of her sport, a young lady who has an innate sense of what's required when riding a horse. In 2021, Jamie took absolutely everything before her, becoming the first jockey to win 100 races in a metropolitan season in Victoria. It was a huge story at the time. Then, with the world at her feet, Jamie was caught up in an equally big story when she broke Victoria's COVID laws and was banned for three months. This is an episode all about the racing industry and athletes drive for perfection, the day-to-day hardships, and there's lots of them that jockeys go through to compete, and being a female athlete in a male-dominated sport. So how much of a typical day would you be what I would describe as hungry? Well, you know, I'm hungry, I'll go to the fridge and grab something. How, how much yeah. of a typical day? Because that's obviously will get to the mental side of your sport, but obviously you've, you've got to overcome that from a mental aspect. It's probably quite unhealthy, but I, I've sort of taught myself now, you know, you, you shrunk your stomach a bit, you don't eat much, so I don't really get that hungry. It's, it's normally thirsty. If you're sweating, you get really, really thirsty, really dehydrated. Um, but I, I, I try to always eat even if I have to sweat. I try to eat some small meals, so, um, yeah. you know, you're not getting that hungry feeling, but... To be honest, I've, I've sort of trained myself now. I, I, I just I can't eat a big meal. If I go out to the pub or for a, for a meal, I have to eat something small because I won't finish it. So you can't handle a big chicken parma? Nah, nah I'll, have a, I'll have a crack at it, but I'd, we'll never get, <laughs> I'll never get through it. <laughs> so what about the hydration side, side of things? Because it's an interesting one, isn't it, in your sport? Because every other sport it, nowadays, it is hydrate, 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 get as much into your system because that's what you need to perform at your best. How do you deal with it? And, and what's it like? What's it feel like when you're like super thirsty, but you can't drink? It's uh, it's nothing like it. It's horrible. It really is. But it's another thing that you get used to. Um, describe not, the like, feeling to me. Just like describe it to me. You just, you, you get this ringing in your head, a ringing in your ears. And it's just, it, it's like you're numb pretty much when you're out there. Um, I'm fortunate I don't have to sweat too much, but through spring carnival, if I have to lose sort of three, three kilos or so, um, you'll get to the races and you'll just, it'll be a constant ringing in your ears and um, you're just so dry. You get behind the gates and you can have a, a cup of water, but you've got to spit it out. You can't drink it. Um, oh, how so hard is that? So you put it in your mouth and then spit it yeah. out. 
That's almost like torture. That's Jamie Carr next up on the show. Hey there, sports fans. I'm Kurt Fernley, former Paralympian, and I've teamed up with the legendary Georgie Tunney on a podcast called You Little Ripper. We bring you a daily dose of the Paralympic Games happening right now in Beijing. We take you behind the scenes with athlete interviews so you get to experience the bumps, bruises and gold medals of all of our team wearing that green and gold. That's you, Little Ripper, wherever you get your podcast from. All righty, let's get back to Liam. Okay, so let's talk about going to work. Um, I've got to find it here. Here we go. Okay. So Hendrick's pitch repertoire includes a four-seam fastball, a sinker, a change-up, and a curveball. First question for you. We see the, the, the catcher making the signals in his mitt. Who decides what you're going to chuck, you or the catcher? And and how do you decide? So generally, like at the end of the day, it's my decision at the end what I'm going to throw because it, it, it doesn't go against the catcher's statistics. It goes against mine. Yep. He has an opinion on what he thinks is best. And so when it's an older veteran catcher, you kind of listen a little bit more because they've been around the block a couple of times. But yeah, it's generally, if he puts down a one, that's a fastball. And depending on what you throw, whether it be a four seam or a two seam, four seams tend to be straighter, two seams meant to be like move a little bit more, like a run, like kind of like a um, an end swinger in okay. seam. So it's just, it does that. Struck him out, fastball, and Liam Hendricks can celebrate. Busted him with more heat. Uh, and then a sinker is the same thing, but it's just straight down. So it's uh, they're all te- technically fastballs, but yeah, one's fastball, two's a curveball, three's a slider, and four's a changeup predominantly. That's your generic one, kind of the way things go. But um, What's your changeup? What, what's your changeup? What, what's that, like a, a slower ball or a knuckleball? Yeah, or it's like- a slow ball. Okay. It's a slow ball. So like, you know, where the way cricket guys, when they split their fingers, and it's, yep. like, it's almost like a – so that, that's what we call a split finger pitch. Which is damn, like it's all it's all in, in the change up family. It's all just meant to just be a different speed, and then everything you fastball because then all of a sudden your fastball looks a lot faster, or that one just can get people on the front foot a little bit more. Okay, talking about fastballs, I know you've listened to some of the shows, so you'd be aware. I have two kids, Liam, that love to ask questions of the guests, and my young fellow this morning, as he's getting ready for school in Barwon Heads, just down the road from Geelong, where you were talking about you played that tournament early doors. Yep. His name is Mac, but he rolls as the Big Penguin. We've looked at some highlights. Are you ready to take on the question from a 10-year-old? Oh, let's do it. Okay. Hey, Liam, Big Penguin here. First off, I hope you have a great year at the White Sox this year. Anyway, back to the business. When I bowl, I probably bowl about 65 kilometres an hour. That's when I bowl pace. And then when I bowl spin, I bowl about 45 kilometres an hour. Dad was showing me some of your videos you pitch them so fast. How fast can you pitch it? And, like, what's your fastest? I think it's amazing how you pitch it so fast. Not short of a word, the young fella. <laughs> Not short of a word. Uh, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree now, did it? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, oh, uh, oh, oh, you got a dog with you. What's the dog's name? This is Jack. Hey, Jack. He's, uh, he's a little Chihuahua Terrier mix, and every now and then he likes to be held so he doesn't get trampled by the other ones. Okay. But, well, you um, can sit there. Yeah, so my, uh, generally my, so my average speed last year was 97.2 miles an hour. Yeah, average speed. Okay, wow. 
So that's, that's the hardest I've ever had in my career. Um, right. Before that, it was like I'd be averaging like 90, either went from like 94 to 96-ish for the last few years. When I was a starting pitcher, I was averaging 90, which is right around, which is right around 143. Okay. So then uh, 97, so 100 is 160. And so 97, I'd put right around 155, 156, 154-ish, right around there. So that's my average. And then my fastest I had last year was 101. And that was, um, yeah, that's the hardest I've ever thrown. So like, like, so the big benchmarks in baseball are your 90, 95, and 100. Yep. That's like your, your three ones that you kind of want to be one, like one or the other. It's, uh, gotcha. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I was averaging 97, touching 100, uh, not regularly, but not abnormally. So it was something that I was able to do every now and then. Probably had, I think, about 10 pitches above 100, which is kind of the upper echelons. I think the hardest pitch last year was 103, but – that was, uh, yes, that's probably what, 165, 166. Yep. Wow. And a swing and a miss. He hit 100 there. What, what's the distance? What's the distance between the mound and the batter? 60 foot 6 inches in American foot, terms. 60 foot 6 inches. Okay, so it's, it's longer longer than a cricket pitch? Yeah, it's probably about 18 metres. Okay, right. that's not far off then. Righto. Right. No, it's, it's it's pretty similar. I never, I always forget which one's a little bit longer, which one's a little bit shorter. But sixty foot yep. six inches, and I'm on a mound, so I'm also raised up a little bit from where the batter is. Uh, so that means that if I'm coming down, I'm trying to get that. Then it looks like it's coming down from the heavens. Hey, all, just me for a quick tick here, just to clarify things for you because it was all a little bit hard to calculate on the run when talking to Liam. So the calculations between baseball and cricket and distances in baseball from pitcher to batter is 18.3 metres. So 18.3 metres, baseball pitcher to batter. A cricket pitch, however, is 20.1 metres long. However, that is stump to stump. So if the batter is batting on the pop increase, which they typically do, the distance from the bowler to the batter is 17.7 metres. So all said, when the calculations are done, the batter in cricket is about 60 centimetres closer than the pitcher and the batter in baseball, I think. I stress, I think. All right, on we go. I want to get back to how you mentally prepare, but let's just follow your journey a little bit more because i got another question for you here. So uh, 19th of September 2012, Hendricks uh, earned his first Major League victory, 6-4 <laughs> win against the Cleveland Indians. So when that says you earn your first victory, another ignorant question, because it's such a statistically dominated sport, how is that victory attributed to you? So what it is is uh, the starting pitcher. Like generally, if I get through five innings and we're winning and we yep. go on to win the game, yep. I would get the win. Right. And then the other pitcher gets the loss. It's just for whatever reason, there's a win and a loss in the column. It's um, it's a way to – like so as a reliever, you don't care about wins. There's, it means nothing to you because generally you have to be very lucky to get a win. As a starting pitcher, it just means you outdo the other guy. But in saying that, you, you did say there was September whatever it was. Yep. Uh, that was, I was actually tied for the third longest in baseball history for the uh, time from my first start to my first win. Oh, no. Nice. actual career starts. Right. So I had 18, 18 career starts without a win, which is the third longest in history. So I almost broke a very bad record, <laughs> but was able to get, was able to get a win. Um, I, there were some unlucky periods in there where I was pitching really well and the team was, yep. we didn't score enough or, I was pitching really well and we were winning and it just didn't come to fruition, but uh, it, it's part and parcel of the way the game works. It's um, the Now that the wins are kind of 
dying out a little bit more and there's when the ways of uh, fans and everything view them it's uh, it's a lot more on what you're able to actually give that is in your control which is a lot better for the sport i think yeah because obviously if your hitters aren't hitting then it doesn't matter how well you pitch you're not going to exactly. win the game are you so okay what does this mean then what does claimed off waivers mean on december uh, 2013, Hendricks was claimed off waivers by the Chicago Cubs. Ten days later, he was claimed off waivers again, this time by the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles designated him for assignment on the 19th of February to make room for another bloke. The Toronto Blue Jays then claimed Hendricks off waivers in <laughs> 21st of February 2014. So in two months, whatever claimed off waivers is, but then you ended up at the AAA Buffalo Bisons. So my head is spinning at this point. What does all that mean? So in a, in a in a three-month period, you've been involved with four different clubs. Yeah, so that was the off-season, which luckily I didn't have to move, which is good, because at that point I was living in Florida and nothing really changed. Nothing really changed at all. It was I actually got married. The uh, I got DFA'd for the first time by the, uh, the Twins on the 3rd of December. What's that, DFA'd? What's that mean? So it means designated for assignment. Right. So DFA, like that just pretty much I got delisted. Okay. So when in baseball, so when I get delisted, so there's a thing called there's the active 25-man roster and then there's the 40-man roster. You have to be on the 40-man to get to the 25-man. Yep. And that's just a way to protect guys. You get a little bit, you get a bigger salary, you get uh, put on, you get like uh, medical benefits and all that sort of stuff, which are a little bit better than if you're not on it. So I got delisted. And then if you get delisted, you can be claimed by any other, any other, other 29 teams. So I got delisted, and then the Cubs said, hey, we'll take you. And then 10 days later, Cubs were like, okay, we, we wanted you so that we can kind of get you through waivers so that you can be depth for us. And then the Orioles like, nah, we'll get you. But then, so you don't even go to Chicago. You don't, you don't throw a ball or anything. No. So it was the offseason. So nothing, nothing in my life changed except for the fact that I was no longer a twin. I was a Cub, and that was that. Two days before Christmas, we're in Canada with my family after I just got married. That was actually, I got DFA'd for the first time on the 3rd of December. Yep. I got married on the 23rd of November that year. Right. So it was pretty much on my honeymoon that I got told I wasn't good <laughs> when enough. When you got the job. <laughs> yeah. So I then went to the Orioles and then I got into their preseason, so spring training. They signed a guy, they needed a roster spot and they called me into the office, said, hey, yep, you're done. Blue Jays came calling, and then the Blue Jays AAA team, which is the the so major league, and then AAA, and their AAA team is the Buffalo Bisons. So I was claimed off waivers, wasn't going to be in the big leagues, but they, but I was still on the the active or still on the forty man roster, which meant that I was still part of the organization, and I had an opportunity to get called up as as whenever I wanted, whenever they wanted me to. So I went down to Buffalo in the nice uh, zero degree temperature and and started throwing some baseballs around in the snow a little bit <laughs> for the Buffalo Bisons. Buffalo Bisons. Couple of questions there. So uh, I'm looking now. Um, so you had a contract in 2011. So you're at 414,000, 480,000, 2012, 500,000. Uh, uh, so but I wasn't you, earning any of that. So that's all like, that was if I was up the entire full season in the big leagues. Oh, so you don't get that. No. So uh, the, if you look, what do you, uh, if the best way to look at this, like salaries for American sports is a, yeah. play, a place called spotrack.com. S-P-O-T-R-A-C.com. Okay. You can type my name and it'll do what's, it, it's not 100% accurate, but it'll be on like what I was able to make off of like when I was up. So like I was only up, so in 2011, I was only up for the last month. So I only got one one sixth of that salary. So you get one sixth of four hundred grand. So you're getting seventy grand. 
Yeah, and then taxes because then you get bumped into a higher echelon tax bracket, which sucks as well. Yeah. And then the next year I was up for half the year. So, but I was bouncing around. So like I was making a certain amount in AAA, I was making a certain amount in the big leagues. And it's just, nothing was ever slow. Like nothing's ever flawed. If you look at my salary for the for the next couple of years, that's guaranteed no matter what. I could be cut, delisted, sitting on a beach somewhere and I'm still making that no matter what. Well, we'll hold off what that salary is because people will have their (laughs) minds blown when we get to that point. So now, Liam, the mental side, not of the the pitching, the mental side of the fact that you're being seen as good enough and then told you're not good enough for a succession of teams. You're getting married. You want to establish yourself. You know, how do you deal with the mental aspect that at any moment at this period, people are knocking on your door basically saying you're not good enough for our organisation? That was tough. I'm not gonna lie, that was that yeah. was hard. It was um, before that you were like you just felt like you're invincible. Like okay, I'm up and down. Like I I haven't quite done what I'm supposed to be doing, but like the, I'm sure they've seen enough where they think that I can get to the next level. I have no doubt that I can take that next level. But the teams just looking at it, be like, look, will you we you may take the next level, but it won't be with us. Hmm. Uh, and so it's just all of a sudden you get just your entire world shattered because. You're constantly thinking, okay, this is what's going to happen now. When I get up, I'm going to stay up. It's just how it's going to go. And then you get told you're not good enough. And then another team comes and says you are good enough. And it's just that those bickering emotions of like, okay, I'm happy, but I'm sad, but I'm frustrated. But like, what else can I do? Like, I and you have no control over any of this at this point. It's all the off season. You have no idea what's going on. You're just kind of hanging out, being like, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And it's it's a very unnerving feeling because at that point. I've got rent to pay in Florida. I've got we just got married, so I'm paying off the wedding. I've got I've got, I've got all these things going on, and it's a it's a very drastic difference between salaries between the big leagues and the minor leagues. And they, don't get me wrong, they're both not obscenely high, but it's such a difference. So, like, because if you're in the big leagues at that point, you are making say I've up all a year in 2011. I was making right around 400 grand in AAA. I was on 30 grand a year. Wow. And then if you get called up once, you go back down and then all of a sudden you make, I think it was like 60, just above 60 or anything like that. So it's a very drastic difference in price of salaries that you're making. So it's uh, you're trying to figure out how much you need to be able to afford the next year. And this is uh, the certain thing. It's like it's a, it's a very cutthroat sport. Like I remember when I first got to double A, there was a guy on the team who'd been in the big leagues and he was just like, your normal guy and we're like oh how you've been up like how are you not being able to just go out and do this and this and this and we ne- you just didn't understand it until you actually got there and then yeah. you realize that look it the, you don't get me wrong you get paid a lot of money but the lifestyle that you are around surrounding like we we're giving the uh, clubhouse guys 100 bucks a day for doing all like the stuff you you tip everybody out and so well, there's a lot coming in but there's a lot of things that uh subtract from what you're actually making as well so when you're bouncing around and you're new, newly married and there's rent and like all of us, you're trying to pay the bills, do you do you stick the faith with yourself that I'm going to be able to get through this or do you have doubts and think, oh, do I need to start pursuing something else? Like, how do you get through that? How, how was it for you at that time? So I was lucky in the fact that while this is all going on, I had some other teams from Korea and stuff like that reaching out. Okay. And so I was lucky in the fact of like, okay, so I have my, my entire opinion at that point, if I get DFA'd and if I clear, so which means clearing waivers, which means that I know other team wanted me, then I would pursue a, a, an opportunity in Korea, which is guaranteed money, which is a little bit more than I'd be making over here. 
Okay. Not as lucrative in the in the end if like if everything plays out, but it's a lot more upfront and guaranteed and stuff like that. So that was uh, something I had to fall back on, which is good. And luckily, I knew a guy called Chris Oxpring who had been over there for the, like for a while, and he'd been bouncing around. So it's a uh, it, it helped me in that regard. But yeah, it's definitely a stressful time because um, you put your you, this is what you set your side on. You set your side on being a major leaguer, and when you get there, you don't realize how hard it is to stick around and stay there. So then you get to uh, Toronto Blue Jays. You make your debut in May 2014. But after two starts, you're optioned back to the Bisons. So yeah, you played two games in the majors, then you're yep. back to Buffalo. And then, so that's 23rd of May. Then on the 28th of July, same year, bang, you're off to the Kansas City Royals. So the way I calculated this, at this point, you've played about 30 games in the majors and you've been at the Twins, the Cubs, the Orioles and the Blue Jays and now you're at Kansas City. Like My head is spinning when I'm following this. At what stage and how did you start to get consistent and play those games you're talking about? Because, you know, this is playing five games getting chopped, playing five games getting chopped at this point. Yeah, so the uh, it, it's – the the one in Toronto actually hurt a lot because it's like I had two starts and I did well and so every start like you pitch once and then and you you're on a five man rotation so you pitch once then you have four days off and you pitch again. Loop throwing in the Blue Jays bullpen. Hendricks gets the call third strike he comes in and puts out the fire the Indians leave the bases loaded. So that was the, the way that starting pitching works. So I had a good start, another good start. And then I got told, hey, look, we're calling up this young prospect who I was doing better than in AAA, but had a higher, so he had a higher ceiling than I did. So my floor was probably, I just had more range and that was uh, not as consistent. And he was a better fit for the way the organization was going moving forward, but it okay. still stung all the same. So then I go down to AAA again, I got one more start with Toronto and then did not do well, uh, and then got traded to Kansas City. So at this point, I've now been a part of several organizations. I go to Kansas City, and instead of going to the big leagues, I got traded over and I went straight to their AAA team, which is the Omaha Storm Chasers. I didn't, even, I didn't even hit the Storm Chasers written down. I missed the Storm Chasers. Right yeah, so the Storm Chasers, and then I got called up to the Kansas City Royals. So at this point now, I've played, and the, the funniest part was, is the first time, the first pitch I threw again for Kansas City, was against the Minnesota Twins. And I was also, I was the starting pitcher against the starting pitcher who they signed when they delisted me. Oh, wow. So his name was Phil Hughes. And so like everybody I've ever spoken to loves the guy. So which I have no problem with. Like it, it's not a, it wasn't his choice to choose me to get rid of. But it was one of those things where I ended up having a really good game for Kansas City that time. Uh, and then stayed up for the September. So September call-up where they expand the rosters a little bit. It's like um, picture the... Aussie rules football season being okay. You've got twenty three guys for the or twenty five guys for this for the first two months of the season. Yep. The last month, the last month of the season, uh, we're going to give you uh, we're going to give you forty guys that you can use. Okay, okay. So it's like you can just rotate the bench through and all that sort of stuff. That's what it is. You, it's you give your regulars some time off. You don't burn your arms or your pitches, so you can give them a little bit of time off and get ready for the playoffs. That's the way the thing works. The rules have now changed that now you get 26 guys, and then in September you get 28 guys. So you get an extra couple guys up that you can help out a little bit. But, uh, yeah, that was my thing. And then I got told that I wasn't on the playoff roster, which was no surprise to me. I wasn't, like, I wasn't one of their core guys. Wasn't on the playoff roster, so I went to the Dominican. 
So I went and played in the Dominican Winter Bowl that year. Dominican Republic? Yep. Went to the Dominican Republic and had an that? absolute blast. Did you? It was great. Like, so there's, um, we had like seven, we call them imports. We had like seven imports on the team at the time. Uh, a couple of the American guys that I played with in the past that I knew a little bit. So it was, had, had a, like, and the catching, the, one of my catchers who was with the Storm Chasers, then with the Royals, his dad played a lot in the big leagues. Um, I went to his team in the Dominican. He was on the playoff team for the Royals. And so he came a little bit later, but, uh, yeah, had an absolute blast, made a little bit of coin out there and, um, yeah, just, playing every now and then and enjoying it. But I got delisted while I was in the Dominican by the Royals as well. <laughs> and then the day before the World Series, the World Series is like grand final, yes, but it's a yes. seven game. It's a best of seven. Yep. So before the first game of the World Series, I got delisted again by the Royals. After the World Series ended, I got traded back to the Blue Jays. So it was a, like a, the Blue Jays said, I want you, but we're not sure if you're going to get all the way through us all the way to us. So we'll give you this height. We'll give you this other guy in an in return for him. So I went back to the Blue Jays again. So I went Blue Jays, Kansas City, back to the Blue Jays. And, and at Blue Jays, you start playing games. So at, at October 2014, you're back to the Blue Jays. You play a career high 58 games at that stage. So now we're, yeah. I've got to look back on my salary here, 2014. So that's when, I went to the, that's when I went to the bullpen. So in spring training, they told me like, look, we don't have room for you on the team as a starting pitcher. Yes. And, so the way when you're on the 40 man, you get three years. So it's three options. So you can be up and down for three years. And then they have to either keep you in the big leagues or they have to get rid of you. Okay. And so that was my year. I was either going to the big leagues or I was getting being I was I wasn't gonna have, be on the 40 man with the Blue Jays anymore. So they were like, look, we don't have a room, we don't have room in this uh, in the starting rotation for you, so we're gonna put you in the bullpen. So at this point, I still kind of thought it was a little bit of a demotion, but at that point, I'm like, I don't care what it takes, I want to be in the big leagues do what I need to do. So I went to Toronto, made the team. By the way, I, the legitimately, I, they, we had two exhibition games in Montreal. Yeah. And it was, I still didn't know if I made the team yet. I have no idea if I'm going to Toronto or if I'm going to Buffalo. And by the way, Buffalo means waivers. So in seven days, I go to Buffalo, which is the time period. So I have no idea. I pitched against, I pitched in that game. On the way to the bus, I got told that I made the team. So I'm calling my wife to be like, hey, we're going to Toronto. She's starting to look for apartments. She's starting to do all that. <gasps> then the, one of the guys is trying to direct me to the AAA bus because he didn't know. <laughs> You're like, hey, so I'm, like, no, no, no. I'm not going on that sucker. I'm going to the other bus. And he's like, oh, congratulations. And then I walked onto the other bus and ended up, uh, yeah, I got told actually middle of the way through that season because I was a long reliever then. So I was the guy who if the starting pitcher struggled, I was coming in to try and throw as many innings as I could so that way none of the high leverage kind of arms got depleted. So middle of the season rolls around. I'm still around. I've been pitching really well. The general manager of the team, so the, the guy who makes all the decisions, came to me and was like, yeah, look, we had actually planned on DFAing you about three weeks into the season. Like He goes, yeah, but you pitched, you pitched better than the other guy and you're pitching well, so we decided to keep you and we ended up getting rid of the other guy. So I ended up sticking around and that was like, I was three weeks away from being out of the game again then. And that's just, uh, there's been a lot of times in my career where I've been very, very close to it all crumbling under me and then looking for something else. Liam Hendricks strikes out Alex Rodriguez. A nasty slider. The Yankees leave the bases loaded. But, uh, Luckily, I pitched well at the right time that year and 
and had a really good year in the, uh, that entire season and ended up with my, as I said, career high in games, career best ERA, most strikeouts, all this sort of thing. So I led, uh, I did a lot of things in the right, the right what realm then and then got traded to the A's. So, <laughs> so. What, exactly. This is what I don't understand. You play a career high fifty eight games. You're starting to go up in all the statistics, even the statistics I do and don't understand. And then November twenty fifteen, you're off to the Oakland Athletics, famous, famous ball club, by the way. So, so what haven't you done well enough that the Blue Jays, for the second time, says, "Sorry, mate, you're out the door." So at that point, um, you look at it from a from a like a, a bigger a bigger worldview rather than just me. And that was the first year I'd been in the bullpen. I'd gone from throwing 90 miles an hour at the start of the year to yep. 97, 98 miles an hour at the end of the year. Yep. So like I just, my everything, that was the everything kind of increased velocity wise for me. So you look at it from an organizational point of view, they had some younger guys coming up. They had enough of their relievers coming back. Do we like, so what's the best course of action for our club? Is it keeping Liam and him possibly regressing? Or is it trading high on him and being able to get something in return? Because you got more value in the market at this point. So the, at this point, yeah, they're exactly right. So they ended up trading me for a guy called Jesse Chavez. And Jesse Chavez was a guy who had started and relieved and done very, very well at both. And throughout the course of the season, like he could be a reliever the entire year. September rolls around, hey, we need someone to start and he'll just show up and do it. Like he's just that kind of talent. Like he just he had a rubber arm, which never got sore. He was just able to do what he needed to do. And so they saw more value in having a guy who could start and relieve and all this sort of stuff rather than me who was morphing into more of a single inning reliever. And so, and Oakland was looking at the other way. They were like, okay, we had our, our bullpen in 2015 was terrible. We want to make sure we go out and get some guys to kind of re, re-bolster that bullpen. And I was one of those guys. That is the end of Liam Hendricks part A. See you for the next innings, part B. Listener.